If you haven't heard by now, Underdog Fantasy is the best and easiest place to play fantasy football this summer. We've all been there in fantasy football leagues. It's Sunday morning and you're digging through news reports trying to figure out whether to start your stud wide receiver that tweaked his hamstring last week. Or you have a player on your team who hasn't been getting in the end zone and then one week he suddenly goes off for 30 points on your bench. With Underdog Fantasy, all the stress of who to start each week is lifted off of your shoulders because it's best ball format. Draft your teams before the season starts and get the best score in your lineup each week. Right now, you can draft in Underdog's Best Ball Mania 3 tournament to take your shot at $10 million in total prizes. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. Underdog drafts close before the NFL kickoff a week away. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdog.com or the Apple store. Go play $10 with code PFF and draft your best ball mania team today. Welcome, everybody. Unexpected Points here. I am your humble narrator and host, Kevin Cole, coming at you for the Wednesday edition. And unlike most Wednesdays, we got some news. We got some moving and shaking on the NFL landscape uh, because of the fact that roster cutdowns were yesterday. All the teams had to get down to their 53, which meant that Some players were traded that we probably were not expecting to be traded. Some players were released that we were probably not expecting to be released. Some players are still on the roster, at least for now. You never know what will happen over the course of the next week or so. But some players are still on the roster that we were not expecting. So I'm going to go through all of that and more. I'm also going to hit a little bit of a review of the Manti Teo documentary for any of you guys who have watched it. I think it'll be interesting, even if you haven't watched it, maybe not planning on watching it. Some commentary, not only on that story, how it was told, but maybe some of the the media takeaways here, especially the deadspin angles. They are prominently featured as part of this as someone who broke that story. I thought it was a really interesting documentary football related and a good recommendation for anyone who wants to check it out hadn't had a chance to talk about it until now so i'll do that later on in the episode after going through some of the takeaways of what we saw yesterday so let's get to that first let's get to what was going on the news and the biggest piece of news that we got yesterday i think for what could potentially happen during the season what could potentially affect even fantasy football leagues you know we're all about fantasy here um betting everything else this week is something that was not a direct result of roster cutdowns but happened to coincide with that and was really a function of the inability of the 49ers to find a trading partner for Jimmy Garoppolo here's some of what uh Kyle Shanahan had to say about bringing Jimmy back in the fold for the 2022 season this was oh my god Jimmy Garoppolo is available as a, as a backup quarterback for us, and that makes sense for him, and it makes sense for us. What else is there to think about? There, there are 32 starting quarterbacks in this league, um, and we believe we have two of them now. Yeah, so Shanahan had a little bit of a conference call with the media after this news. For the details on what happened, Jimmy G is going to take a reduction to his salary, be somewhere between 6.5 and you know 10 to in the teens, millions, depending upon whether incentives are hit as part of this deal. And the way Shanahan described it, the sequence of events when it came to Jimmy coming back, and this is quite a turnaround from the fact that Jimmy was not practicing with the team, was not part of the team meetings, was not given the playbook. Of course, that's not going to be a huge deal, right? Jimmy Garoppolo, I think, can figure out the playbook for the San Francisco 49ers, despite the new wrinkles they may have added because of Trey Lance. So all those different things were happening. Jimmy was very much, I was about to say persona non grata, but it wasn't that they didn't want him around. They had moved on. They had moved on mentally, and then they were moving on physically by not having him as part of the building. They guaranteed $2 million to Nate Sudfeld 
to be the backup quarterback. That's not something you do if you're really holding out hope that you're going to bring back Jimmy Garoppolo eventually. So according to Shanahan, the sequence of events mostly was based upon Garoppolo's maybe you could call it a capitulation, but Garoppolo's decision-making on, you know what, being a backup here is my best option at this point in time. And Shanahan said, the last week of preseason games went through. The Saturday games, which was all but two games, were done by the end of Saturday. That all went through. No quarterback injuries, no major offer coming from someone like the Seattle Seahawks, who, you know, Gino, as I mentioned, was the second highest graded quarterback in the preseason behind Marcus Mariota. So, you know, Seahawks could probably talk themselves in to a little bit having Geno Smith as their quarterback. Just not going to be that ironclad opportunity for Jimmy to go start somewhere else and make a lot of money somewhere else as someone who was scheduled to make 20 something million dollars on his last court contract. So once all of that played through, Jimmy came to them and said, you know what? Okay. I'm willing to stay. I'm willing to come back. I'm willing to take the cap reduction that they had already discussed would be a necessity if he was going to come back. And that's how it played out. And that's how he made its way back here. This is not some vast conspiracy theory. You know, Trey Lance is not performing up to snuff. Uh, Shanahan is panicking and bringing the back Shanahan and Lynch and bring him back. No, I think this was a mutually agreeable situation for everyone involved. They weren't, you know, pestering Jimmy to come back, but once everything was laid out to him, and I think it is best from Garoppolo's perspective to get a contract where he has a no trade clause, so he can decide whether or not he'll be traded. It's not going to be a situation where if a team decides they want to bring him in as a backup somewhere else, they can call up the 49ers and the 49ers have the ability to send him wherever they want. They don't. So he has a no trade clause. He can decide that. And he has a no franchise tag clause. So he can come next off season, much earlier in the off season, hopefully for his sake, not having the injuries, not having the shoulder injury. And he can pick and choose where may be his destination next year. After let's face it, some of the quarterbacks who people are hoping are going to be the guy this season end up falling apart and people start to reach out in free agency to bring in Jimmy Garoppolo in the same way that people were reaching out to bring in Carson Wentz and Mitch Trubisky and others earlier in the cycle last year. Garoppolo is going to be part of that early season transition free agency trade cycle next season and he'll come in. So what does this mean for everyone here? And I thought that uh, I probably should have clipped it here. I thought the Shanahan also had some good commentary when it comes to Trey Lance and what this means for him because the reporters and I think this is more of a reporter narrative social media thing than it is an actual inside the building thing the reporters are very concerned about is this going to be Trey Lance now looking over his shoulder at all times you have Jimmy Garoppolo you have someone who's won roughly 70% of the games that he started there for the 49ers you have someone who I've pointed out many many times Despite what you'll say about his abilities, he's someone who performed in an efficiency basis as a top five per drop back type of quarterback when he's been there in San Francisco. So you have that bar there. Does that mean Trey Lance is going to be rattled by this, that the extra narrative about should they turn to Jimmy if things go off the rails a little bit earlier in the season? What does that mean? And I think Shanahan was 100% correct where he said, Being a quarterback in the National Football League, it's a high-pressure position. It is a high-noise position. There's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of everything going on for all 32 teams after week one, depending upon whether some teams are going to be high, some teams are going to be low. And yes, Jimmy being there is going to increase that chatter some, but what's going to determine whether or not Trey Lance is successful is how Trey Lance plays. He's going to have plenty of rope as the number three overall pick that they gave three first round picks to who can run pretty well, who can boost up that running game, who has a good, at least projected to be good defense to play for the 49ers. He's going to have plenty of rope here. And the times that we've heard about this in the past, that a quarterback may be rattled or affected by the perception of the team not having their back, bringing someone I mean the most recent time is probably Carson Wentz when 
Jalen Hurts was brought in as a second round pick. I discounted that at the time. And there were some people who even post Eagles meltdown Carson Wentz were pointing to that Jalen Hurts pick as saying that got into his head and that affected him. Well, I mean, what got into his head and affected him last year with the Colts? You know, Carson Wentz is Carson Wentz. I think that is the important takeaway. These guys are who they are, no matter who's playing behind them. Joe Montana had MVP seasons with Steve Young bringing down his neck. The Patriots famously drafted multiple quarterbacks on day two while Tom Brady was there, including Jimmy Garoppolo in the second round when Tom Brady was there. Great quarterbacks, quarterbacks who are your franchise quarterbacks will play through that and continue to produce. These are not wilting little flowers. I think we need to give players a lot more credit for being professionals and for playing through and not being so caught up in the day-to-day noise that we're going to be having and we will see going forward. Now, that said, after I just got done with this long monologue and diatribe about that, there's a chance, there's a good chance, good meaning material, not meaning over 50%, meaning, I don't know, 10 15, 20% chance that Trey Lance is not going to work out as a starting quarterback. That's just the way it goes. Look at all the quarterbacks throughout the last 20 years who have been drafted in the top five. While you're not flipping coins, you're maybe flipping a weighted coin to hope that they're going to work out. We don't know what we're going to see from Trey Lance there. So the fact that Jimmy is there, there is some chance that they turn to him eventually. But from the 49ers perspective, wouldn't you want to have that player to turn to potentially? The clock's going to run out on Shanahan and Lynch, no matter how great some people feel about them, if they don't win ball games, They can't have another season like they did in 2018, like they did in 2020 where Jimmy Garoppolo, the starting quarterback, in this case, Trey Lance, goes down and they lose a ton of games and they don't make the playoffs and they wash out again. Only so many more times we can see that, especially when they've given up these first-round picks in the future to have Trey Lance there. So it does give you a floor for a team, again, that has a great defense, for a team that got really far in the playoffs last year despite the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo was injured and was not playing well. I talk a lot about how Jimmy Garoppolo puts up those good efficiency numbers. People point to the end of last season for him in the playoffs, and they say, what are you talking about? This guy stinks. Well, guess what? The efficiency numbers say he stunk during those games, too. The same numbers that I'm saying say he's good other times say he stunk there. So I do think this is a big win for the 49ers to bring him in because no matter how much certainty you want to have about Trey Lance, and I'm excited about what Trey Lance can bring. I'm not down on Trey Lance. No matter how much certainty you have, You never know you have the guy. That's the reason that you drafted Jalen Hurts. That's the reason that you bring back a Jimmy Garoppolo. And if your starter can't hack it, can't make it, you know, you have to turn the page. You don't blame yourself for bringing an incredible competition. That is only a good thing in the NFL. All right. Another major piece of news and not directly related to cut downs here is Chauncey Gardner-Johnson being traded from the New Orleans Saints to the Philadelphia Eagles. And the thing here, especially when looking at the compensation, which we're talking about a fifth-round pick, you know, flip around a couple six-round picks, it's basically nothing for Gardner-Johnson, former fourth-round pick, on the last year of his contract. Why did it happen? Well, Dennis Allen threw a few things out there during his press conference to talk about it, but I'm going to, after we hear from Allen here, I'm going to dig into what we're hearing chatter, at least behind the scenes by those who know the New Orleans Saints the best about why this may have happened. I want to say this. I want to say that was not an easy decision. Uh, I love Chauncey. He's been a big part of what we've been able to do here, uh, specifically defensively, a big part of our organization for the last three years. Um, and and certainly we wish him the best. So not an easy decision is what we got here. And I think there's a few different angles to look at this. The first is, and maybe I'll tout this a little bit right up front, because those who listen to this podcast know or follow me on Twitter, 
which you can do at Kevin Cole PFF. Know that I am very much in the camp of the cap is real. Everyone likes to say the cap is fake. For me, the cap is real. The contracts, for the most part, are fake. You can you can adjust the contracts. You can adjust the guarantees. You can extend things out and lower the cap hit in the current year. But the cap itself is very, very real. There is a hard cap in the NFL. That exists. Despite the fact that the Saints seem like they're able to get around it forever. So this is a team, the New Orleans Saints, that is $61 million, projected to be, $61 million over the cap next season. So when you have a player like Gardner Johnson, you think you have depth at defensive back, you are going to be willing to potentially move on and get something for him. The problem, though, with the deal is they didn't really get anything from him. So what's going on here for getting nothing for a player who was scheduled to make $2.5 million this year? Well, it seems to be that Garner Johnson, the way he talks on the field, and he's a talker, maybe the number one shit talker in the NFL. Um, I want to go that far, but he's up there. He's, he's, he's prominent, let's say, as far as that's concerned. Seems like he was doing a lot of talking in practice, behind the scenes, to reporters, to the coaches, to the front office, to anyone within uh, listening distance that he wanted a new deal. So if you look at what Jeff Duncan is saying, and he's with the Times-Picune down in New Orleans following the team there, you look at what Nick Underhill is saying, and Nick Underhill uh, spun off into his own operation, New Orleans football, which is uh, supposedly doing very well. So congratulations to Nick. I love people bet on themselves and are doing well there. If you look at what they're saying, they were not surprised at all. Those closest to the team were not surprised at all that this deal happened, even though it may have shocked a lot of Saints fans. So according to Duncan, and this is in his article in the Times-Picune here, he says that he had heard whispers that the Saints were considering trading Gardner Johnson after contract extension talks had broken down. He heard that there was about a $4 million difference per year between what Gardner Johnson wanted, which is maybe in the $12 million a year range, and what the Saints are willing to pay him. And, you know, $8 million a year for an NFL player, even a a cornerback safety, which is kind of a the, the slot cornerback slash safety role is kind of devalued in the NFL. That's still a small amount. I mean, look at what Derwin James just pulled in recently at safety. And uh, things have just been getting worse and worse. Gardner Johnson was doing a little bit of a hold in. He was skipping some practices. He was missing out on some drills. And they even said during some practices, this is again, Jeff Duncan talking here says during some practices, he was barking at the team's trainers and others about the fact that he was limping and could have been injured and saying, hey, this is what you wanted. You know, I want this. He wanting this contract, wanting to have that security. And I don't blame Garner Johnson at all here. I think you fight for yourself. I think he talked himself into getting out of town so that it all aligned well. And I don't think the Saints deal would have happened no matter what. But again, they need the cap space next year. They have Marcus Davenport, Eric McCoy are guys that are going to want to re-sign. They're already $60 million over the cap. McCoy's not even on the – doesn't even have a cap number next year. So if they're going to re-sign him uh, at center next year, they're going to have to add money there. Garner Johnson's not on the books next year. And they were way, way over the books. And, you know, let's go ahead – you know what I should do is let, let's go ahead and bring up some of the numbers here so I can talk through it for – the Saints and their cap next year because let I me mean, it is it is ugly. Um okay, so let's go to uh my friends over the cap.com, which is always where we want to be when we're looking at uh cap related stuff. And so 2022, let's go to 2023, because that's going to be the interesting thing here. So 2023, look at the different cap hits for the different players that we have. And it's not only the cap hits that we have for a lot of these guys, but it's the cap hit with the fact that they can't cut these guys for the Saints. So you have Michael Thomas at a cap number of $28.2 million. Cam Jordan, and, you know, I love Cam Jordan. I love Cam Jordan, but... We're talking about Cam Jordan, who is going to be, he's 33 years old 
Okay. Cam Jordan is 33 years old and he has a cap hit uh, next season. It's only 12 million this season. Next season, it goes up to 25.7 million, which is 23.5 of that is dead. So, uh, you know, what are they going to do there? Not sure. Marshawn Lattimore, 22.4 million. Ryan Ramchek, 21.4 million. These are guys, you can't cut any of these guys. Andres Pete, 18.3 million. Can't cut him. Um, who else we got here? Alvin Kamara jumps up to 16 million. Taysom Hill, 13.9 million. Taysom Hill. <laughs> Next season. You can't cut him. 24 million dead cap for this guy. Jameis Winston. 15.6. Can you imagine they're going to be paying Jameis Winston 15.6 million, and then they're also paying Taysom Hill 13.9 million? Uh, what a disaster. And then you have a bunch of other guys, you know, uh, Honey Badger, 8.9 million, not too bad. Marcus May, 8.6. You know, those are fine. Those are fine. But it's just everyone jumps up to these huge numbers for the Saints next year. And that's just going to be a killer from a cap perspective and why they had why they had to get rid of them. So again, well, we're going to notch a feather here for the cap is real type of people. And then on the flip side of things, the flip side of this trade, when we're talking about the Eagles, the, the Eagles have become a favorite, a darling of everyone, including myself, I would say, for what they can do this year. And this is just another one. They had perhaps the worst secondary in the NFL going into this season, projecting out what they were going to do. They bring in James Bradbury. Now they bring in Gardner Johnson, who they're going to probably play at safety. They already have Darius Slay there where, you know, he's getting a little old, but he can still play there. Now they have some competent guys there. And it's really maybe their linebacker group is the only group that you have to worry about from the Eagles, but they're deep all across the board. And people are talking about their ability to move in with a rookie quarterback contract. And what I'll point out to here is that people push back against this when I pointed this out on the old Twitter is the fact that Joe Burrow, same year as Jalen Hurts. And of course, Joe Burrow is way better than Jalen Hurts. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that Hurts' contract is not only a rookie quarterback contract. I mean, Joe Burrow is going to be as a $10 million cap hit next year. So that's cheap for a quarterback. Don't get me wrong. That's cheap for a guy when other quarterbacks are be making 45, 50 million a year to have a guy at 10 million is a great, great, great discount. Jalen Hurts, $1.6 million is his cap hit next year. That gives you an additional $8 million plus of room to spread out and to go for that Joe Burrow doesn't even have, that the, that the Bengals don't even have, that the Chargers don't even have because of how quickly those contract numbers go down. So the Eagles do have a ton of cap space. And that, that Jalen Hurts pick, again, I, was, I had the definitive – Jalen Hurts pick being a great article. I'll do a little gratuitous self-congratulation, as I've been known to do from time to time. That turned a team that was in cap hell, basically, going into last year. Being able to get rid of Carson Wentz in that contract, being able to move a few things around, extend a few players who you wanted to, cut a few players to make um, contract savings elsewhere, all of that facilitated by Jalen Hurts making about a million dollars a year. Such a huge turnaround for this team, which is now looking more and more like the favorite in the division. Although I wouldn't overhype necessarily what Gardner Johnson is going to do. He gives competence at this position, despite the fact that he's maybe a 60 something graded player for us. People, other people have him being higher there. Being above replacement level at certain positions, including safety are very, very, very valuable. And it puts the Eagles in that much better of a position now going forward. And again, I would put them out as being the favorite in that division. All right, before we get into some more moves, cut downs um, from yesterday, we're going to talk DraftKings. Get ready, guys. Week one of the NFL. Is a week and a day away. The official sports betting partner of the NFL, DraftKings Sportsbook, has a new offer here. $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. And now everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings early win promotion. Get up seven, you win. Bet on any NFL team of your choice. And if that team leads by seven points during any point in the game, 
you instantly win. Does not matter what happens the rest of the game. You cash out, you put that money away in your account. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 and over in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for terms and resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee red line at 1-800-889-9789. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. One per new customer. Minimum $5 deposit and wager. $200 issued as eight $25 free bets. All right. The other, I won't say earth-shattering news, but definitely some waves in the NFL was the fact that the number 17 pick of the 2021 NFL draft. That's right. 2021. We're in 2022. Just a year ago, mid round first, right smack in the middle of the first round. Alex Leatherwood is out. He is cut by the Las Vegas Raiders with Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniel and everyone coming in there, clearing out the decks and clearing out the last of the Gruden-Mayock era of first-round picks. Uh, I guess they still have a couple who are still hanging around on the roster, but um, not any from the last two seasons, from 2021 and 2020. So let me just go back to some numbers I compiled here from draft time to look at what happened over these last three seasons. And it goes down to the concept of, I don't believe necessarily that Mayock and Gruden then are terrible talent evaluators. They had some bad luck. But when you're trying to make the best decisions possible, what you're trying to do is tilt the odds in your favor for every pick. You're trying to tilt those odds. And then the accumulation of that added benefit, that added value on every single transaction, every single pick, every single time you churn the roster for picking players up off the waiver wire, every single time you make a trade, every single time you sign a new contract, a particular amount that you're paying, all of that accumulation of value will eventually put you in a higher probability chance of being successful, of building a competent and deep and layered roster than you would have otherwise. The biggest problem with what the Raiders did here with these picks is not just that they were busts. Because Alex Leatherwood, yeah, they took him at 17, and people thought it was a horrible pick because they thought that he should have been drafted in the second round. If you look at his consensus big board ranking and these are numbers that are put together by Arif Hassan over at the athletic he takes all these different big boards from the draft industrial complex all these different draft prognosticators brings them together all the different big boards talent big boards for everyone and Alex Leatherwood was 45th on that big board of media and experts, football experts on the outside, public football experts for 2021. So if you cut him after a season and he's the 45th pick in the NFL draft, that's still awful, right? That's still bad. That's still a horrible pick. Now, the problem is this was a pattern for the Raiders of taking these guys way earlier, giving yourself less room for air, giving yourself, you know, you could have taken these guys in the second round instead and then had a better pick in the first round to fall back on. So Leatherwood was the biggest reach in the first round for 2021 when we look at the consensus big board versus where he went, 17 versus 45. If we look at 2020, and I think for Henry Ruggs, definitely some bad luck here because he was coming around as a player. I think he actually helped Derek Carr quite a bit become more functional throwing the ball down the field when he was there, there, but still rugs was 12th. They, they drafted him 12th versus 14th on the big board. Not a huge difference, but took him first, the first wide receiver off the board when he was ranked below guys like Jerry Judy and even Justin Jefferson to a point. 
They took Damon Arnett, who, of course, is, is gone also. At 19th, we're on the big board. He was 63rd. So that was a massive, massive reach there. Um, they took Clellan Farrell at four versus 20. Josh Jacobs, 24 versus 25. But if anything, that 25 ranking on the big board is problematic. Uh, not accounting enough for positional value, in my opinion. So that's even a bigger reach than you might think. And then Jonathan Abram at 27 versus 46 on the big board. So just consistently giving yourself less room for error. And that's what you're trying to do in the NFL draft. Values in the NFL draft are not really a thing because in order for to get a value in the NFL draft, you have to have multiple teams who all had an incorrect assessment on someone. Reaches are a thing in the NFL draft. Only one team needs to have an incorrect assessment on someone for it to be a reach. And that one team, unfortunately for Vegas Raider fans, or that one front office and that one coaching staff was Mayock and Gruden multiple times over and over again. But this is something that we could have seen coming, at least to a degree, by the fact of how much they were reaching on these picks consistently over and over and over again. All right, a few other things on my radar from yesterday. Tredavious White's hitting PUP will miss at least the first four games of the season. The reason this is interesting to me is that, and I will caveat this at first, I love the Bills, okay? I think they're the best team in the NFL. I do. I thought they were the first or second best team in the NFL all of last season, even when players and media and other people were in the dumps for them after they lost the weather apocalypse game. I never gave up on them. But I think we have to look at the totality of what happened last season versus just what happened in the playoffs offensively from them when projecting them going forward to say that they, while they may be the best team in the NFL, there's not a huge difference between them and three or four or five other teams, including the the Rams who they're going to play on week one. And the reason I think the Tredavious white PUP is particularly interesting for these first four games is he was a key component of that defense and their start to the season is really going to be difficult versus what they have for the rest of the season for the Bills. They're going to be on easy street starting in about week eight or nine on, but it's going to be a tough start of the season. So I'm telling Bills fans now and everyone who likes to overreact to everything that happens the first few weeks of the season, you know, zen out a little bit, do a little, you know, breathing, get out some chakras or something, chakras, whatever they call them, um, and just be calm because you're going to start the season with the Bills. Rams, Titans, I mean, Titans aren't that great, but they're not, you know, nothing to sneeze at. Rams, Titans, Dolphins, who I think will be much improved this year at Dolphins. Ravens. Steelers, eh, Steelers, you know, whatever. They can put something together, though. Chiefs, Packers. Four of those first seven games on the road. Uh, It's not out of the question that Tredavious White down, maybe figuring out the wide receiver situation a little bit with Gabe Davis coming in, Isaiah McKenzie, Jameson Crowder, uh, an offensive line that could be a bottom 10 type of offensive line for the Bills. I mean, Allen's done a fantastic job buying time and avoiding sacks, but he is a little bit prone to fumbles. So maybe a few unlucky fumbles there. There's a possibility, and it's not out of the realm of possibility, that the Bills could be four and three after seven games. Again, with Tredavious White maybe being out five, six of those games, possibly. We'll see. They could be four and three. They could even be three and four. I mean, if they lose to the Packers, the Chiefs, the Rams, and then the Ravens, all good teams, right? They lose those four games. That's four losses right there out of those first seven games. So everyone calm down, but I think that's going to be something we're going to revisit maybe around week five, six, seven, as others' hair is on fire, wondering if if not the Bills were the fake god and aren't going to be able to come through this season after everyone hyped them up too much all off season. That's what I'm going to be jumping in, swooping in, telling everyone to calm down to pulling my Aaron Rodgers impersonation of the R E L A X. 
Um, just something to keep in mind with Tredavious White missing some time there. Another thing that came down the pike, which I'm trying to comment less on the ridiculousness and that I see online, but I can't help myself here. And this is the fact that Kellen Mond was released third round pick 66th overall, I believe of the uh, 2021 NFL draft. And unfortunately, Jets fans, you know, I want to root for you, Jets. I want to root for the Jets to do well. But Jets fans were very offended, to say the least, by anyone who was questioning the Elijah Vera Tucker trade up that happened in that 2021 draft. For those who remember, uh, they traded away a couple of third round picks to move up a handful of spots to draft a guard. Fine player. You know, looks pretty good so far as a player. But I'll say that Jets fans have been salty, to say the least, about that, about the fact that there was pushback on that, especially from PFF and others, and nerd, you know, salty at the nerds out there, um, ever since that has happened. And now this is given justification to jump out there and to start crowing about how it was actually a great trade to go up and get Vera Tucker because of the fact that Kellen Mond has been released and because of the fact that their other draft pick, Wyatt Davis, has basically done nothing. If you go on to, you know, the ugliness here of uh, the Twitter sphere after this has happened and go ahead and look to see what, what's going on here online. We have so many, so many people jumping in. Jets won the AVT trade now, by the way. Part of the AVT trade, which is still good. I thought the Jets lost the AVT trade. Oh, my God. With Wyatt Davis and Keller Mond now both cut, both third-round picks, the Jets trade and the AVT trade have been cut six, 12 months later, so on and so forth. Just one looking better than ever, this trade is looking. Okay. Oh, oh my man. My man, um, Seth Walder, getting the uh, – getting the treatment here of them just posting his, you know, you know, when someone, they, they try to dunk on someone by just posting their picture, their uh, Twitter avatar by dunking on them for South Walder over at ESPN uh, stats and info getting, getting dunked on, on that one. So everyone's jumping in here. Okay. Let's not be, don't be, don't be like these brain dead uh, Jets fans. Sorry. That's a little bit of pejorative there. I got, maybe I got too far with the brain dead, but don't be like these guys. Okay, what the picks end up on the other side of the equation has absolutely nothing to do from the Jets perspective as whether or not they made a good trade. So what? Those two third round picks did not happen to work out. That does not mean that it was a good trade. Does that mean it was a better trade? We know what third round picks generally do as far as how often they work out, how valuable they usually are. You don't look at specific players to figure this out. Let's look at other players who were available in the third round, right around those where those players would have been, or players in the early fourth round in that 2021 draft who could have been taken with either the 66 or the 88th pick, the two picks that they gave up. Davis Mills went there. Hell, you know, sorry, Jets fans, but uh, Davis Mills could be better than Zach Wilson. Davis Mills went there. Uh, Paulson Adebo went there, starting cornerback for the New Orleans Saints. Josh Palmer, a very promising wide receiver three for the Los Angeles Chargers, went in that range. Nico Collins, pretty promising starting wide receiver now for the Houston Texans, went there. Amon Ross St. Brown went in the early fourth round there. Ramondre Stevenson went in the fourth round there. Plenty of players, and many that I didn't note, who were contributing to their teams there. Yes, those two specific players did not work out, but there were two dart throws which could have ended up with a super valuable player on a very inexpensive contract. Okay. Just because those two specific players did not work out, does not make the trade any better from the Jets perspective. Sorry, Jets fans. I know a lot's gone wrong for you the last few weeks. I know you want to have something to crow about, but don't do stuff like this because then it's just going to give me excuses for having to jump and, you know, discount what you're saying here. Uh, nothing else big news front there for for cut down. So I wanted to go a little bit 
recommendation here, a little bit of recommendation hour. Um, and I watched over the weekend and didn't have a chance to talk about the Manti Teo documentary. I'm not sure if anyone else did, but I thought it was really excellent for those who want to check it out. It's on Netflix. There's a whole new uh, series of documentaries that they're going to have on different uh, sports-related subject matter. And I know Manti was pretty well involved, I think, in putting this on as part of it. And there's some clips that have been shared on there. This is definitely one of those moments after watching some of this that we can look back and we can say, how did we act in the moment? How did we consume this in the moment? How did we think about Manti and others as human beings as opposed to memes and stories that we can talk about? And Manti in particular had a pretty moving segment on here that got shared some on social media that you may not have seen it. Uh, talking about how he views himself now going forward, now he is able to relate to fans going forward that I thought was worth sharing on here. Always going to be that little kid that's going to come up to you because he loves you. But if you look at that little kid, like the way that this dude that's treated you, you're going to ruin that little kid. That is my challenge every day. That when somebody comes up to me and they say, man, man, I'm a big fan of you that I don't think of the times of the hundreds of people that said, man, I'm a big fan of you, let me take a picture. And I took a picture with them and they made fun of me. If there's anything that I can do, that's what I'm gonna do every day. You know, I'm gonna rise above all of that, bro. No matter how, how hard it is for me. I'm gonna look at all these people who made fun of me and the people who actually believe in me is I have to take a second to be like, they actually love me, man. They love you. They don't want to make fun of you, bro. Treat them nice in a world that's just spit on you. Remember all those people in the stands that had the lace on. Because you're going to have hundreds and thousands and millions of people that touch you. You ain't worth nothing, man. But there's going to be one that's going to say, you worth the world to me. And I play for that person. So that was a, a little clip there from it. And for those, I mean, I'm sure everyone's probably familiar with the, with the story here. But of course, it was the the fake girlfriend story. Manti Teo had a, you know, long distance relationship. There was a question as to whether or not with someone who they found out later did not exist. They had a pretty extensive interviews with Ronnie Tuasopo, who is the perpetrator of this there who I think came off pretty bad in this, but at the same point in time, I don't want to, I try to have trying to have some empathy for, for a lot of different people in this, but this was definitely one of these moments after seeing this and really realizing that it does appear and you never know, but it does appear that he was truly duped as part of this. He was not in on it as part of this. Um, this was a pretty extensive operation. He was just the type of person being isolated in South Bend as you know, an Hawaiian guy who was originally going to go to USC, but then changed to go to South Bend uh, later based upon the advice of a priest, which is pretty wild, who just goes on faith a lot of the time. And that may have been somewhat of his downfall in this situation. But I think this is definitely one of those moments where immediately I thought to myself, what was my reaction in real time when this was going down? And luckily, I'm not, you know, I'm not the biggest like college football guy generally commenting on those things. So I didn't comment on this. It reminded me a little bit of the Eddie Lacy story where a number of years ago, Eddie Lacy, you know, opened up about the fact that, you know, he found he was troubled by how much people jumped in about how he was fat and his weight and everything else. And I also went back to check then and I was like, okay, good. I did not say a lot about, <laughs> about Lacey and, uh, and his weight at the point in time. So I think that was probably a pretty big takeaway is to give people a little bit more of a, a benefit of the doubt based upon what I saw there. But I would recommend anyone go see it's two episodes and very um, surprisingly, it, it does not seem to drag on that much. I've found a lot of documentaries, especially now documentaries become a big thing on these different streaming services. A lot of documentaries can really drag on. You know, there are like seven, eight episodes where they could probably be three or four. This is a couple of episodes. It goes by pretty, pretty quickly. It goes into everyone's history. 
Uh, Manti ends up coming off, you know, looking naive, but a lot better as part of this. And maybe just a slight reminder that, yeah, these guys are are big football players. Yeah, they're going to make a lot of money, although he made a lot less money because of this controversy. Probably would have been a first round pick instead was in the second round um, and everything else. But still human beings behind all of this and all that we're saying on on social media and elsewhere. OK, lastly. And let's get to the mailbag section of the program. But before I do that, let's talk about Manscapes. Gentlemen, all strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of the face of danger. He is a big hairless winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet. The Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand-new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. All right. Had to hydrate a little bit there before we get into it. So I sent out a call um, a couple of weeks ago about mailbag questions. Unfortunately, I was down with COVID at the end of last week. So I could not go through them, but now I will. And we got some good ones. We got, I got some nerds. I got some good nerds following me online. And I appreciate that for some of these questions. All right, let's get to it. Uh, First from Adam Steele at two miles. Hi, Adam is a contributor to football perspective and other places. A great um, steward, especially of the game when it comes to some of the older uh, stats and information that I've been able to get from him. His question is, which box score stats correlate the strongest with PFF grades position specific? Okay, let's start at the quarterback because that's the place to start with these different things. So when you look at PFF grades, they do correlate strongly with EPA per play, which would be expected points added per play, my favorite metric. They do correlate a little bit stronger with something like passer rating, which discounts um sacks sacks are not part of the equation and sacks are not in my opinion heavily weighted enough in pff grading so that comes into it and another thing is completion percentage over expect over over expectation that one also correlates very well um depending upon the time period you're looking at even better than epa per play for quarterbacks and again when we're thinking about pff grading i think it's about understanding pff grading it's about the throws more than anything else and completion percentage over expectation is really isolating accuracy and throws there too. So that's why those two things go hand in hand for other positions. It's going to be more of an efficiency type of metrics that we're talking about for players versus volume metrics. So if it comes to um, receiving yards per target, So it's going to be the closest with grading because grading, at least for the most part, and that's changing a bit, we're doing more grading when players are not targeted now. But when they were targeted in the past, they're being graded when they're being targeted. So therefore, it is kind of on a per target sort of basis like we'd see there. Same thing for defensive players where you don't have a lot of box score stats for these guys, but you are going to get like when you are targeted uh, efficiency type of metrics a little bit more so than looking at guys who just aren't targeted that much at all that fall through the cracks there. All right. Uh, another question here. I, I thought this was interesting because it's kind of a related question when uh, this is Zach uh, at Zach H Armstrong asked, uh, he's heard about me talking about certain players gaming PFF passing grades would be interested in what you think weighs heavily into passing grades, EPA, QBR, how certain players thrive or fail in them. Always enjoy the show. Thank you, Zach. Well, I will not correct you, but I will just make sure it's clarify. I don't think players are gaming PFF passing grades. Maybe I've said that 
in the past, but I didn't mean to say that they're gaming actual PFF passing grades or any sort of PFF grading as much as when people say Aaron Rodgers is gaming uh, you know, passer rating by having these low INT rates. I don't think players like Aaron Rodgers or whoever, uh, Kirk Cousins, people will point to as someone who games the, the system. I don't think they're consciously gaming these different stats. I think the stats like passer rating, the stats like PFF grading encapsulate a lot of the biases that probably also go into how people view quarterback play generally that isn't quite as accurate in a, in, in a value-based perspective as something like EPA per play because they downweight, let's say, sacks versus interceptions. I do think – I don't think Aaron Rodgers is gaming the system by taking a sack or Joe Burrow is gaming the system by taking a sack rather than throwing an interception or rather than throwing an incompletion. I think that they feel that that's probably better quarterback play, just as a lot of people feel that it's better quarterback play. It's one of the reasons that it follows through into what the PFF grading is doing. So I I don't want to attribute um, any sort of negative motivation into what these players are doing. I think they may be trying to avoid interceptions too much because there is a negative connotation with that. They're more likely, if they are a marginal player, to get benched when they do something like that, despite the fact that it can be the right thing to do to be more aggressive and to raise the probability that you throw an interception. And I I went through an episode earlier this year going through all the different types of passing grades, EPA, QBR, um, DVOA, everything else, and looking at different types of measures. And I'll just say that that's probably a good primer from earlier this summer if you want to go through all that. I think it's just... Sacks being the one biggest thing, sacks and yak, sack and yak are the two different things that fall through a lot more to EPA that don't fall through to QBR in particular for when it comes to yak and then sacks in a lot of these other different measures. Okay, from NU Northwestern, I assume football stats at NU football stats. What are your contrarian over underrated quarterbacks going into the season? Any favorite contracts signed this offseason? Okay, so quarterbacks. The over and underratedness discussion probably gets a little bit nauseating for a lot of people. I admit, I participate in it way too much. And the reason I participate in it, and I think I've said this before, but just to reiterate, people don't seem to understand what over and underrated means. People seem to think if a player has improved a lot in their perception in your mind, over the last 12 months, then you believe they're underrated because you're saying, oh, look at what everyone thought about this guy 12 months ago. They're wrong. They're a lot better. But the problem is you're just on the same train as everyone else. It's it's a little bit weird how often people point to a player as being the most underrated player when they're also the highest rated that they've been in several years by public perception. Those two things cannot go hand in hand, Okay. I mean, the guy this season, unfortunately, uh, is Derek Carr. Derek Carr is now like a top 12 type of quarterback. He's showing up in a lot of different quarterback rankings where this is the highest that he has been ranked in several seasons, probably since um, after his 2016 season where he got MVP votes. 2016 season. Yeah, 2016 season. He got some MVP votes. They went 12 and 4 that season. This is probably the best that he's been rated since then. He was rated as being kind of league average-ish, if best, in many other seasons. Now he's seen as being a fringe top 10 sort of guy. So, no, again, nothing against Derek Carr generally, but he's going to be the guy that I'm pointing to who is probably overrated. Not mean not good. That doesn't mean he's not good. Doesn't mean that he's not, you know, at least a league average quarterback. I'm just saying right now he's at the highest point um, that we've seen him for a while underrated there's gonna be some really weird thing i mean be contrarian maybe to say that patrick mahomes is underrated but i believe any time that he is not the odds on favorite to win the mvp he is an underrated guy and in a weird way what we saw in the preseason how great they were in the preseason doesn't really give me a ton of comfort that's not the thing that's gonna make me think that he's really gonna turn things around I'm not turning things around, but it's not, that doesn't mean things he's going to return back to MVP form is more that he was really good to start last season. He had that low in the middle that was tough, but he was really, really good the last four games of the regular season and into the playoffs. 
he just had that one bad half, that one bad second half against the Bengals. Excellent in the first half against the Bengals. Excellent the entire game against the Bills. Excellent against the Steelers right before that. They had already really figured things out offensively against these defenses the way they've been playing against Patrick Mahomes. They already figured that out at the end of last season. So that gives me confidence that he'll return back to form. I mean, not the most interesting guy to to necessarily point to. And some other guys who may be over or underrated going into this year. Well, I think Kyler Murray is underrated right now. Um, And if you're playing fantasy football, he's a guy that I would draft like – pretty early you know Josh Allen's going to be number one Lamar Jackson's going to be up there Mahomes and Herbert are going to be up there I, I would go ahead and take a shot at Kyler Murray I think people forget like how good he was in that MVP race race to start uh the season last year so he's another guy that I could pretty easily point to as being underrated right now because of how the team fell apart at the end of the playoffs and people really kind of just being off of him because of that and I don't know. I mean, I don't really like saying this, but you know, maybe Joe Burrow's a little overrated. I just want to see a little bit more from him right now. He had a fantastic year. Don't get me wrong. A little bit better from grading than he was from efficiency. So I guess I just want to see a little bit more from him versus someone like Herbert, who we've seen for, for multiple seasons play at that sort of level. So again, great player. Uh, nothing against him as a player. Not saying he's bad or anything like that, but maybe Burrow right now. Give me a little bit more. Give me a little bit more from, from Joe Burrow in the first half. And I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to do it, especially with the offensive line there. But I just want to see it a little bit more this season before I turn things over to him. Um, here's an interesting one from Kurt Warner's stepson. I'm not sure who that is, but at dank underscore tweets underscore God. He's the dank tweets God. Uh, which quarterback, which quarterbacks, I assume, have the most clutch late fourth quarter drives that changed or tied the lead? in which they were credited with a turnover-worthy play, meaning they weren't actually clutch. Most notable examples. Okay, I looked up some information for this, but I'm going to challenge the premise of the question. I'm going to challenge the premise that having a turnover-worthy play and still winning the game and coming back in the fourth quarter means you're not clutch. And this goes back to having a proper risk calibration for a quarterback and turnover worthy plays also a lot of them are dropped a lot of there are a lot of dropped interceptions so that doesn't mean that you were doing the wrong thing right it doesn't mean that you're not clutch because you had a turnover worthy play that didn't turn into a turnover in my opinion part of the equation when you're coming back is being willing to take risks, willing to potentially throw an interception in order to get that higher end outcome. You know, you don't care if you if you throw four straight incompletions and have a turnover on downs, or if you throw a dump off on fourth down and then have a turnover on downs, don't get there. You don't care if that happens or if you throw an interception at the end of a game when you're trying to win. Doesn't matter. You should not be optimizing against the interception versus dumping it off to someone and hoping they can make a play, especially when throwing the ball down the field, making it more likely in the middle of the field in particular, making it more likely to have an interception is what you need to do to make that comeback. So I would disagree with the premise that you're not clutch or you should be discounted in some way if you have a turnover worthy play. And a lot of times if you're down and you're making a big comeback, you're probably going to have a lot of turnover worthy plays that aren't caught and you're going to get you're going to get the lucky side of that. You know, you're going to run hot on dropped interceptions and that's what you need to come back so there's nothing wrong with go ahead and, and doing that. That said, I looked at players who were doing it and Matthew Stafford is one of the biggest guys who had turnover worthy plays but then still came back throughout his time uh with the Lions, but I give him credit to that. Uh Matthew Stafford again is my uh, poor man's discount Patrick Mahomes. And I think that he has a pretty good risk calibration, maybe a little bit too much on the risky side for what he does. And we even saw an example of that in the playoffs, right? Where they had a dropped interception against the 
49ers that a lot of people are going to want to point to as that could have ended their season. Well, he also threw the ball down the field for a huge play to Cooper Cup against the Buccaneers that ended up winning that game and took a lot of other risks that ended up winning the game. Throwing in a turnover-worthy play every now and again, knowing that a material number of those turnover-worthy plays, you know, 20, 30, 40% are not going to actually result in turnovers, isn't necessarily a bad risk-reward play from a quarterback. Um... Casey Caprini here. How's your family doing? Hope we all approve. That's back to the COVID. We are all good here. Thank you for the well wishes here. And lastly, I'm going to hit a question here from Daniel Frazier at I am the mighty Oak. That's quite an interesting Twitter handle there. Um, Do you think coaches and organizations get more credit for data-driven team and game planning if they openly talk about using them? I saw a chart recently that showed the Titans and Chargers added the same amount of value in win percentage through fourth down decisions last season, but no one talks about Vrabel as a data-driven coach like Staley. Can we infer good process through coaches' decision-making and not just if they are open about their process in interviews? Would there be an advantage to using analytics while not publicly admitting it? Um, Good question. Good question. I think the problem generally with coaching is that we don't have a lot to go on as far as how data is being used beyond very isolated circumstances that people get tired of hearing about. The fourth down decisions, the run pass ratios, things like that. So we can judge people on that. And when it comes to someone like the Titans, that's interesting that you say from the fourth down decisions because I'm gonna I'm actually gonna look that up for the fourth down decisions for the, for the Titans. But I know at least when it comes to you know run pass and especially early down run pass, Titans aren't gonna look so hot in that regard. Um, run heaviest team in the NFL and especially on early downs. Der- Derrick Henry's been great though, so he's been fantastic. So maybe we shouldn't complain about it that much. But I do think it, it affects. Um, our perception to look at to look at how often these guys are talking about it because that's what we have to go on a lot is vibes when we don't hear what's going on behind the scene enough and that can be a mistake now let me look at the titans here how much are they going for when they should they look like they're above league average versus yeah the chargers are only slightly higher than that i think the chargers were just doing some absurd stuff sometimes they were going for it when they the models were saying not even to go for it so they were just pushing that aggressiveness even further there so yes i do think there's some into that and as to whether or not there's advantage to not discussing it i would say there's not an advantage to discussing it that much unless you're trying to get the nerds of social media on your side and pumping you up and maybe generating a positive image. Um, There's no definable, quantifiable reason to discuss it as it being better, I think, to help the team. But on the other side of things, I think there's probably too much reticence for teams, other than maybe the Patriots or teams that are very successful, to talk about it because no one's going to like steal your ideas out there. No one's going to say, oh, you know what? Um, Brandon Staley made a really compelling argument there for going for it. So now we're going to start going for it more often. And that's going to somehow whittle away the advantage that Staley has. No, no, no. I mean, it is a copycat league. You have to prove and be good first before teams will follow you. And even then, people are pretty stuck in their ways. So maybe someone like the Patriots wouldn't want, would like to hold the cards very close to their chest at least back when they had Tom Brady and they were performing a little bit better uh, versus some other teams that may copy everything they do. But I think even more overhyped is the thought that other teams will copy what you're doing. If you're more open and honest about the data you're using, the process that you're using, I I don't think most people care. I think most people are pretty stuck into what they're doing there and won't end up following you. So you don't have that downside. So, you know, let it out. I want to hear what you guys' strategy is. Um, so hopefully we'll get even more of that in the future. And I do think these young coaches are a little bit more willing to talk about it and not just speak in cliche, which is refreshing and, uh, good for, you know, our data driven guys out here who are hearing what the coaches are doing. All right, everyone. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this Wednesday edition of Unexpected Points. I'll be back at you on Monday. We have one week until football. I'm preparing all the data, getting everything ready to go. Going to discuss some of the stuff from a betting perspective, only because that is our best market aggregated and tested expectation for how good teams are to make sure we're all in line with what reality is going into these games where there could be some pockets of value. And then of course, reviewing them afterwards to see how do the results really differ from the underlying information on how these teams play. That's going to be the important thing to do every single week. I hope you tune in with me all this season to do so. Otherwise go ahead rate and review the pod. And then I'll be talking once again at everyone next week. Thanks so much.